Hello, everyone, and welcome to CBA's At The Bar, a podcast where we have unscripted conversations with our guests about legal news topics, stories, and whatever else strikes our fancy. I'm your host, John Amarillo of Taft Law, and joining me as co-host today is Jen Byrne of the Chicago Bar Association. Hey, Jen. Hey, John. How's it going? Well, thank you. Jen, we have a topic today that any true crime aficionado will love. Really, anyone who enjoyed The Godfather, Goodfellas, The Untouchables, The Sopranos, or Casino, which is based in large part on the story and characters we'll discuss today, will love this episode. It's about the family secrets trial, the prosecution that dealt the most serious blow to the Chicago mafia, also known as the outfit, since the conviction of Al Capone. And it all began with a letter and a glove. The letter was sent in July 1998 by Frank Calabrese Jr., the son of Frank Calabrese Sr., the feared and sadistic street boss of the outfit's Chinatown crew. It was addressed to the FBI, and almost beyond belief, Frank Jr. offered therein to turn state's evidence, cooperate with the government, and take down his father and his uncle, Nick Calabrese, one of the outfit's most trusted hitmen. Frank Jr. would end up wearing a wire during countless conversations with Frank Sr. as the father reminisced about his decades-long career in organized crime, trying to teach his son about their murderous family business and, in so doing, providing the government with almost unimaginably useful evidence. The glove belonged to Nick, who on a warm September night in 1986 had accidentally dropped it on a Chicago street after murdering one of his closest friends, another mob killer who had previously botched a hit. John Fecarota. In the outfit's world, it was kill or be killed. And if you bungled a hit, it would usually cost you your own life, even at the hands of a friend. The glove sat in an evidence locker for years, untraced to its owner, until Frank Sr. told his son about its previously unappreciated importance. And the FBI, now knowing its value but unable to reveal their source, told Nick in turn that it had his DNA all over it, and they had him dead to rights. The ruse worked. And that's when it happened. Nick decided to cooperate. It was the first time in history that a made member of the outfit had turned state's evidence, and it changed everything. Combined with Frank Jr.'s tapes and the testimony of 125 witnesses, Nick's cooperation and eventual testimony led to the unraveling of decades of organized criminal rackets and murders. Operation Family Secrets became the Family Secrets trial, which began in 2007 and ended with the convictions of Frank Sr., reputed outfit boss Jimmy Marcello, Capo Joey the Clown Lombardo, corrupt cop Anthony Twan Doyle, and several other feared outfit hitmen. It was one of the most important criminal prosecutions in the country's history, and it has gone down in legal and mafia lore as the biggest hit ever laid on the Chicago outfit. Joining us to discuss the trial is one of the government's then-prosecutors, Dr. Marcus Funk. Marcus? Well, Marcus is one of those lawyers whose resume is humbling to review. He has a Ph.D. in law from Oxford, where he's lectured. He's a former section chief with the U.S. State Department. He's been invited to speak before the U.S. Senate, the Vatican, and the World Bank, among other institutions of note. And he's the firm-wide co-chair of Perkins Coie's White Collar and Investigations Group. Marcus has been described by the press as a street-smart prosecutor with an Oxford pedigree, and we're lucky to have him with us here today. Marcus, thank you for joining us, and welcome to At The Bar. John, thanks very much, and Jen, great to be with you guys. So, Marcus, we're discussing what's been uh, described as one of the most important criminal investigations and trials in American history. No small task. It's difficult to know exactly where to start with a topic that big. But if you'll indulge me, I thought we could start by quickly identifying the defendants in the case, the mobsters, and then dive in by discussing the case from your perspective so our audience can see, really experience it through your eyes. There were seven defendants in this trial who we'll surely discuss in more detail shortly, but as a very, very quick overview— 
We have Nick Calabrese, a member of the outfit Chinatown crew, who is one of the mafia's most trusted hitmen and who proved to be a key turncoat in the case. Frank Calabrese Sr., Nick's brother and the street boss of the Chinatown crew, he was one of Chicago's most prolific loan sharks and was linked to multiple murders. His son, Frank Jr., would also turn on him during the Operation Family Secrets, which was the investigation that led to the trial, and at the trial itself where he testified against his father. Joey the Clown Lombardo, the capo or head of the Outfit's Grand Avenue crew, a senior figure and one of the most memorable of defendants. Jimmy Marcello, the reputed boss of the Outfit at the time of the trial. Paul the Indian Shiro, an Outfit enforcer. Anthony Twan Doyle, a corrupt former Chicago police officer accused of feeding information to Frank Sr. during the Family Secrets investigation. And Frank the German Schweiss, perhaps the Outfit's most feared hitman and part of Lombardo's Grand Avenue crew. Okay. I know that was a lot, but I think it'll be helpful. Marcus, one of the things that might surprise our audience is just how recently this case was tried. I think most of us think of the mob's apogee, you know, ending several decades ago. But I, for one, was just graduating at law school when this trial started in 2007. Talk to us about where you were in your career then in 2007 and how you got involved in the case. Yeah, sure. Happy to. So at the time that I kind of first got involved with the case. I was actually living overseas. I was lucky enough to spend two years in Kosovo as a section chief there for the DOJ through the Department of Justice. So I was quite happily sort of living in Pristina in Kosovo. And uh, I got a call, you know, I was thinking about coming back to the U.S. and I got a call from the front office uh, of the U.S. Attorney's Office saying, you know, would I like to be involved in the case. As luck would have it, I wasn't fully sort of read in on all the details of the case. So I made a couple calls, found out that it would be an opportunity to work with Mitch Mars and John Scully and the FBI agents who've sort of been dedicated to this particular matter, this particular case and this topic. And I think I called back, you know, five minutes later and yeah. and told the front office that I'd be delighted to get involved. And that really had a pretty big role in terms of bringing me back to the U.S., so, I mean, that seems a little random to me. You know, they reach out to a guy who's posted in Kosovo to come work on a mob trial in Chicago. Did you have prior experience with organized crime investigations, prosecutions, or what connected you to the prosecution here? Yeah, you know, I, I wish I could say, oh, it's because they, you know, they thought I was so so smart or so um, so savvy. I think a, lot, a big part of it was practicality as well as fit. Obviously, in Kosovo, I did a lot of uh, organized crime work, although primarily from sort of an advising perspective. In the U.S., I'd done uh, some Russian organized crime cases. This is a whole different thing, and particularly in Chicago, you know, the, the group that was dedicated, is dedicated to doing that work, is a really small group. They're very senior prosecutors, and um, frankly, they're, they're people that few of us who are relatively newcomers, you know, I had been in the government seven years by the time of the trial, you know, most of us didn't get a chance to work with those guys. They were sort of, they seemed quite uh, mysterious. They worked in rooms that were dedicated to their cases. And and unlike, you know, kind of our, the rest of us who had 20, 30 cases going at a time, these investigations took years, decades, and rarely resulted in indictments. And when they did, of course, they tend to be big news, just like Family Secrets was. And so, you know, I was coming back to the U.S. I didn't have other cases. I, I had a, a sort of a clean plate in front of me. And I think that was part of it. Part of it was that I had some trial experience and and had some relevant experience, but not to overvalue myself on this one. I think a lot of it also had to do with the fact that they needed someone 
who the team felt would fit in and who uh, had the the bandwidth to do it. And so, so I, I I never really asked about why I was asked to get involved, but I uh, I know uh, it was a kind of a hot case in the U.S. and a lot of people want to get involved, but there are probably a lot of great prosecutors who just were too busy with other things. Tell us about the prosecutors that you were working with in the U.S. Attorney's Office, legendary people that you named right there. So give us a little background on those individuals that you mentioned, Mitchell Mars and John Scully. Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, truly, we look, we all have you know long careers. We hope to have long careers. And, and for me, I, I spent 10 years in the U.S. Attorney's Office, which by Chicago standards is actually a pretty decent amount of time. You know, working with those guys was the absolute, not only un, but it was the absolute highlight of my career, both with the government and after the government. Mitch was, and I say was because he he sadly passed away in February of 2018 prior to the sentencings, but Mitch was really the heart and soul of the prosecution. He was the lead on the team. You know, we always kind of consider each other equals in the U.S. Attorney's Office, but there's always someone who's sort of had the case the longest and worked it the hardest, and that was Mitch. And he, uh, he had a fascinating career previously to coming to the Department of Justice, but he was just... Uh, an unbelievable prosecutor, unbelievable person. In fact, uh, there was a, a two and a half hour long line at his wake uh, of wow. people, most of which had never met him. Uh, and it just showed what respect I think the people of Chicago had for what he had done for the city. This is a guy who, you know, a lot of us, myself included, have a habit of trying to promote ourselves and, and try to make ourselves look good. Uh, maybe to some extent that's sort of the human condition, but Mitch was free of that. He really, um, he looked great as a prosecutor without trying. And so he was one of those uh, true blue prosecutors, prosecutor in the best sense of that term. And then John Scully, much the same. John is a, is a career government servant, a career prosecutor, worked the case from sort of day one with Mitch, uh, is now a judge up in Lake County, is just one of the finest people I've ever met. And so, and they had pretty w- wicked sense of humor too, a lot of practical jokes, a lot of... Uh, a lot of jokes at my expense as the new guy. I still have a shadow box that I was given at my going away party with three bananas, uh, plastic bananas in them lined up. And particularly John used to always call me the third banana, lovingly, of course. And so um, <laughs> so that's the environment that I that I came into. And, and like I said, what was really special about it is, you know, usually, you know, we have cases that are just pretty quick. You know, you work with the agents pretty intensively, but they, they settle. In other words, they plead out or they... Uh, or they go to trial, and you're kind of in and out of the case pretty quickly in relative terms. I'd never had a case like this where it was essentially a full-time job for years getting prepared for this monster trial. As you said, John, at the outset, I, it's been described, and I think accurately described, as the largest mob murder case in U.S. history. And you feel sort of the weight of all the other prosecutors and agents who've worked on it, right? I mean, yeah. John Mitch and myself and Mike Maseth, are often the names you hear, but there are literally dozens and dozens of agents, of prosecutors who who have, in, in different facets in different parts of the country, worked on the case broadly described. And so to be able to join a group like that was pretty humbling, I've got to say. What was the state of the investigation, the prosecution, when you joined? Where were they? Were they ready yeah. to hand down indictments? Yeah, so the, the, the investigation, I mean, look, the conduct charged here went back I mean, the first murder was, uh, I believe, 1970. The last one is 86. Those were Albergo at the beginning and 
Fecarata at the end in the fall of 90, September, I believe, of, of 86. So the charged murders spanned uh, 16 years. The charged conduct, I mean, we had testimony going back to the Al Capone days from, uh, from an expert witness, who, a mobologist, who spoke on the history of the Chicago outfit because one of the things we had to do is establish that there was such a thing as a Chicago outfit and that it was, a, in fact, a, a racketeering conspiracy. And so the state of the case was that ultimately, if memory serves, 15 individuals were charged in, in 2005 in the 48-page indictment. Of those uh, 15, nine of them did not go to trial in the sense that I think two of them passed away, six of them pled, and one, Frank the German, wasn't physically in a position to go to trial at that time. And then that leaves us with six, one of which is Nick Calabrese, as you mentioned, John, at the outset. And Nick was, of course, a cooperator, so he didn't go to trial. So the five right. that actually showed up in court with Judge Zagel in, in the ceremonial courtroom at the Dirksen building are the, the five you mentioned. But so, you know, the case when I came over, came back from Kosovo in 2006, had been indicted, and we were, you know, basically spent, you know, what felt like every waking moment getting ready for trial. And the big decision really was who, candidly not to charge. We had a superseding indictment and there were a lot of people who, you know, there was pretty good evidence against, but you can't charge the world. So really the question was what would be a, you know, the right charges, the right individuals in a way that we could persuasively present to the jury. And and that's where Mitch and, and John played a huge role. I was also involved in the superseding, but uh, but that was uh, sort of the task at hand when I joined. Let me ask you about that, Marcus. So what was the broader strategy here? It's my understanding this was the first time the outfit was being treated as a criminal enterprise and its members weren't just being prosecuted for the individual, the individual crimes they committed as part of that enterprise. So what was the overall strategy and what were the charges? Sure. I mean, look, the outfit had been charged previously. Obviously, there were some big, really high-profile cases against uh, Chicago organized crime. And, and it's important to remember that while there's not a handbook for it, uh, the FBI's understanding, our understanding always was that the Chicago mob at its heyday was really the most powerful criminal enterprise in the U.S. and perhaps ever. Its reach geographically stretched down to New Orleans and over to Los Angeles. And so while there was some division of the country between the different organized crime groups, most prominently, of course, uh, the mafia in New York, the way this case was charged, the RICO conspiracy is what it was. We charged it as a RICO conspiracy alleging mm -hmm. extortion and, and bookmaking and murder, bombings, all those type of things as the supporting conduct. And the strategy was, for one thing, we had the first made member of the Chicago mob to testify. And we also, for the first time, which is shocking if you think about the history of, of the mob in Chicago, for the first time sought to indict uh, and convict a made member uh, of the mob for a homicide. So the strategy was, and, and you were kind enough, John, to say that we had essentially taken out the Chicago mob. I wish it were so. I think they're still alive and kicking in, in different parts of the city and different parts of the country, obviously not with the same strength that they once had. But um, the strategy really was to deliver the, the most impactful frontal blow against the organization that had ever been delivered. And that's what Mitch and John you know, set out to do long before I knew anything about the case or anything about these individual defendants. And ultimately, you know, that's what we as a group set forth to do, and we're lucky enough to be able to complete it. Let's talk about the evidence a little bit in the case. 
you know, I was thinking about this as I was reading through, you know, the press releases that were issued and some of the reading material that you suggested for us. But how do you get through a mountain of evidence that goes back to the 1970s and really pull this case together? So, you know, I'd be curious from your perspective, how did you go about doing that? And then, you know, once you did, what was the strongest evidence that you had in the case? Well, I'll begin with the last part, which is what what was the strongest evidence? It was really audio tapes. Uh, we had Frank Calabrese Jr. recording his father. He approached the FBI in 1998 about cooperating, and uh, he was in prison at the time. And so he approached his father wearing a wire and uh, recorded conversations, which we were able to get into evidence. That was tremendous. If I can just break in there, I think it's kind of important to appreciate how amazing that is. You had the son of one of the mob bosses coming to the FBI and volunteering to tape his own father. Yeah, and that's, I mean, look, that's why the name Family Secrets, right? It's right. two family members who had secrets here that gave the case the name. One is, like I said, Frank Calabrese Jr. Frank Calabrese Jr. was convinced that if he didn't cooperate, his father was going to ruin him or worse. And so he felt that he needed to do it. So he dropped a letter to Tom Bourgeois, the FBI, in 98 and uh, offered to cooperate. And that then led to him uh, wearing a wire and talking with his dad uh, in prison about murders and other things, right? With his dad, of course, having no idea that his son was wearing a wire against him. It was very dramatic and, and incredibly powerful evidence. And his dad, Marcus, was basically just like reminiscing to his son as they were taking laps around the prison yard, right? Isn't that... There, there's some level of reminiscing. There's some level of grooming. There's some level mm. of preparing his son for the future. Uh, in other words, if it's purely reminiscences, then that, that evidence is, uh, uh, you can have an argument about, um, about admissibility, but you can also, mm. because you, know, you need statements and furtherance of a conspiracy, but you can, you know, those are also not the most powerful evidence. What you had here is, to some extent, his dad telling his son, here's where we screwed up, here's where things went wrong. Here's where people were weak. They should have been stronger. To some extent, it's his dad bad-mouthing other people, including his own brother, Nick Calabrese, in a way that uh, is, is obviously intended to both increase his profile within his son's mind and also, again, to tell his son, sort of, here are the people you can trust, here are the people you can't trust, mm. and here's how we do what we do, including, of course, talking about the making ceremony, which was uh, the first time that was ever uh, captured on on audio, describing the burning of the cards in the hands and so forth. And in parallel, not entirely parallel in terms of timing, but in parallel, we have Nick Calabrese, who um, thereafter is approached by the FBI, and uh, Nick is, is Frank Sr.'s brother. And he also, although he doesn't exactly voluntarily uh, write a letter to the FBI when the FBI comes to him, you know, he ultimately agrees to cooperate without a lawyer, without a plea agreement, uh, without any kind of a deal. He just asks that he be treated fairly. And in the course of his cooperation, he admits and is ultimately convicted of 14 homicides that he himself was involved in. And of course, uh, using the term involved more broadly, there are many, many more, uh, multiples more that he can say to be involved in. But he ultimately pleads guilty to 14 homicides. So we have... If you look at the a spoke and the hub kind of uh, way of looking at it, you've got Calabrese in the middle and you've got both his son and his brother independently and un unknowingly of one another giving us information about against him. 
and his son wearing a wire and his brother who was present with him at various homicides talking about which homicides they committed and where and when and and so forth. So it was really a, a confluence of incredible events for the government that allowed us to bring this case and to really try to, like I said earlier, you know, deliver a meaningful blow against the Chicago outfit. Why do you think they did it? I suppose for our listeners who haven't read as in depth into the case or heard the testimony, start with Frank Jr. Why do you think he came forward with that letter? Well, you know, I, if you ask five people about why these folks did what they did, you'll get five different answers. I'll kind of, in terms of what Frank Jr. testified to at trial was that he was mistreated by his father throughout his whole life, and his father was trying to pull him in deeper into the mob. Frank Jr. had not committed any homicide, and his concern was that he would get involved. You know, he had a, a family, and his concern was that once his dad came out of prison, he would get him more involved in, in mob activity, force him to get involved, which would result in him committing murders and being killed or having to kill others. And he just thought that the only way for him to get extricated out of the uh, out of that situation was either to kill his dad or to begin cooperating. And he said his dad pulled a gun on him during an argument at one point, right? Yeah, they had a volatile, I mean, I think even Frank Sr. would admit this, they had a volatile relationship. At one point, Frank Jr., uh, the allegation is, or he admitted to having stolen money from his dad, and his dad, you know, put a gun, barrel of a gun in his mouth. I mean, this is not sort of the, you know, the traditional parenting of a <laughs> father-son sort of environment that we're hopefully all used to. So it's a... Uh, it's just a different dynamic. And, and so Junior just uh, saw that as his only out. With Nick, it's a bit of a, a more muddled picture, which is what I said at sentencing with Nick. Nick is a, is a complicated figure to me, and I think to most people. Not complicated if you're the kid of someone he killed, right? If you're the kid of one of the 14 people he admitted to personally killing or, or, or any of the other people whose murders he was involved with, it's not complicated at all. He's a horrible person. And I remember when I first got involved in the case, I had a pretty strong uh, view of, you know, in, a, in if you speak about morality, what should happen to him at the end of his cooperation. And, uh, you know, he cooperated in large part because he was caught, right? I mean, he was, we had his DNA on a glove, that had the DNA of, uh, of, of Fecarata, John Fecarata, his old friend, and he was involved in his homicide. And so he, you know, we had the goods on him. Um, that said, I think he also realized, and this is, you know, armchair psychologist here, and I'll limit myself to sort of the more obvious things, that he had had a life, you know, that was a bad life. And I mean, his brother, Frank Sr., he loved it, right? He loved when people laughed at his jokes and pulled his chair out and took his coat off and, you know, really tried to butter him up. His brother, Nick Calabrese, I mean, he was just a, you know, kind of a regular family guy. I mean, almost like in the movies, you know, where the guy goes home and <laughs> hangs up his hat and no one has any idea what he did during his day. And so while, you know, while Calabrese was very much senior, was very much in, on everyone's radar screen in law enforcement, Candidly, and this came out of trial, we had no idea that Nick had committed any more homicides than that one, uh, the one mm. that we ultimately, you know, kind of caught him with. And he, 
he said, look, I'll, I'll tell you everything I know, but I want you guys to be fair with me and uh, no preconditions. And then over the course of really of years, you know, he unpacked, uh, obviously in that course of years overall, but he shared all of the murders that he was involved with, all the knowledge he had. And it, I think it's fair to say that it came as a great shock to everyone in law enforcement that this fairly unassuming guy was involved in really mass murder. And so why did he cooperate? Well, I think he just ultimately realized that his days were over. And I don't think he had a great amount of loyalty to his brother. You know, Frank Sr. treated everyone badly, including Junior and including Nick. So it's one of those, you know, adages about be careful of who you step on on your way up because you're coming back down at some point. And that's exactly what happened here. And uh, there was very little loyalty to Frank Calabrese Sr., in large part because he was so brutal in his interactions with everyone else uh, while he was still in charge of things. And why do you think Frank Sr. trusted his son enough to reveal all this information while they were in prison together and they were having these conversations? I mean, given that their relationship at that point seemed like it was kind of up and down, pretty negative. And he was very suspicious of his brother, Nick, throughout those conversations, but yet he opens up so candidly with his son. Why do you think that's the case? Well, he's cagey with his son, too. I mean, it's not like he just comes out and talks, but he's cagey in large part because he thinks that the government might be watching, which, as luck would have it, we were. I think what his son did really well was basically act, right? And privately, his son, he loved his dad, but he also hated his dad. And that's exactly what he said during trial. And I think that comes out in these in these tape recordings. He knew once he sent that letter in the mail that the die were cast for him. And I think his dad trusted him because his son made his dad think that his son really was interested in getting in the business and really wanted to know what was going on so that he was prepared to assist his father, maybe take over for his father. So I think the short answer is that he he did a great job of, of acting and persuading his dad that he was now, you know, he was past his, his bad ways uh, of uh, drugs and so forth, and that he really wanted to kind of get into the family business with his dad. So what were the biggest challenges you thought you'd face when you were going into the trial? What did you see as the, the biggest hurdles I think the the biggest hurdle, and there's the biggest hurdle for the team and the biggest hurdle for me, the biggest hurdle for me was just getting all these people's names and activities straight. I mean, mm. for John and Mitch, this was second nature, right? They'd work with and prosecuted some of these people going back again decades. For me, this is all new. And so for me, one of the challenges was, and I got sort of put in charge of the homicide part, you know, establishing the homicides. Um, and making sure we had the right evidence for it. So for me, the ch the challenge was just to wrap my arms around all of the conduct, all the names, and and all you know everything that was going on here. I think for us as a team, the challenge was how do we explain to a lay jury, and how do we make sure we get in the evidence that we need to get in, how this organization functioned, that there was a conspiracy what the connections were between the different individuals that brought them all together. In other words, you know, like John, you and I can conspire. Jen may have never met me, but if we're all operating for the same goal, it can still right. be a criminal conspiracy. And that's easier said than done. 
you know, we all say, oh, well, there's the outfit, there's the mob, but you still have to prove it, right? You can't right. just say, well, didn't you see Scarface? I mean, of course there's a mob. <laughs> no, you've got to actually prove the, how these people cooperated, that there's a hierarchy. We had awesome audio tape of, of uh, Frank the German Schweiss being recorded by a guy named Red Wimette saying that, you know, what are they going to do? Kill me. If they kill me, there's another one. We're, we're like an army. There's always one to replace the other. But those types of, of tapes and recordings were, were critical for us to establish the existence of the conspiracy. But part of it's also you have some really, you have Frank Calabrese over here who's committed, you know, 14 homicides, uh, 13, I think, was what we convicted him of. And then you have, on the other hand, you know, Paul Shiro, who you mentioned, who is down in Phoenix, who hasn't met most of these folks, at least we had no evidence that he had, who in many ways seemed like a bit player, and he was involved in one homicide. And obviously I say one homicide. I mean, it, it, it's a horrible thing if you're the family member, but the Emil Vachi homicide in, uh, in 86 is what he was involved in. And so part of it's also to bring it all together so you don't have like the really you know, the, the mob boss over here with all the homicides and this other kind of more of a, what could appear to the jury to be a lesser figure. So to us, the big thing was just to not overdo it, you know, right. not, not to have too many additional points and to really try to keep it as simple as we could and to establish the homicides and establish all of the different bad conduct. And frankly, I mean, the trial, you know, in many ways you go into a trial, you think of, you're sort of like a producer, a director trying to put a, together sort of a movie and you're trying to think of how all the individual vignettes fit together and who should be first. You know, we had some 125 witnesses. Which witnesses come first, second, third, fourth? How do we tell the story? How do we get the jury to understand how this all interrelates? We're talking about 40 plus years of criminal enterprise. Right. That was the challenge. And this the swath of bad conduct that you mentioned, it was immense. It wasn't just homicides. It was running gambling rings and street tax on local businesses and even running a casino in Las Vegas, right? Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, uh, you know, the, the way some people describe the case is, well, if you have you seen the movie Casino, if you saw the movie Casino, all of the homicides in that movie are homicides that we charged right. as criminal conduct in our case. Now, the movie came first. Right, so Scorsese did his movie first. At that point, these homicides had not been resolved, had not been, no one figured out exactly how they happened and who did it, and certainly didn't convict anyone of those homicides. And those were, obviously our conduct was much broader, but those were all homicides we had convictions on. So like you say, in a way, our, our job is to try to, to sort of prove the, those things, the different kinds of activity, right? The loans, the, the juice loans where they squeeze people for high interest rates, extortion, gambling, et cetera, all the way from Vegas up to Wisconsin. But what we're really talking about are hundreds of thousands of individual criminal activities, right? Every loan, every, every all of this stuff that was going on was criminal. So figuring out, well, which ones can we prove? Where do we have the strongest proof? And where do we have the type of proof that'll make sense to a jury, and that's mm -hmm. how we proceeded, and that sort of that was the challenge, which ended up it ended up coming off flawlessly. And like a lot of these things, at the end, if it looks like very simple, that means you've done your job. And I I don't think this case seemed simple to anyone, but I think the jury got it. Going into the trial itself, what do you think some of the turning points were? Looking back on it, and what surprised you about how you, you said everything went in flawlessly, but were there any surprises at trial? 
Well, look, there are always surprises. When you've got 125 witnesses, you've got witnesses who, you know, for a year tell you one story, and then all of a sudden <laughs> they're sitting on a witness stand and they tell you a different one. Yeah. Now, that ended up being really good for us. It often is, right? I mean, it's pretty, it was so obvious that sometimes these witnesses were changing their story because they were either trying to, you know, undermine our case or they were afraid of the defendants or some combination thereof. And in each case, it became immediately obvious, I think, to anyone in the room what was going on here. And we could really turn that against them. The big surprise was that, I take it back, three of the defendants testified. Lombardo right. testified, Frank Calabrese Sr. testified, and Doyle testified. That's, un I mean, I, just, I'm, I don't know if it's unheard of. I th it's fair to say that none of us thought that we're going to get three out of the five defendants testifying in their own defense. I think it's fair to say that very rarely... You know, does that ever happen that multiple defendants testify in their own defense in one case? Um, and to have these folks do it was, you know. And they ended up shooting themselves in the foot, right? The descriptions I've read about it, they just came off as incredibly disingenuous. Yeah, well, I'm happy. I'm happy. <laughs> That's how you felt about it. Certainly how we feel about it. The people you, you read who were retelling what their recollections were. I mean, part of it was they shot themselves in the foot. Part of it was that Mitch and John and to a lesser extent I, you know, took their hands and pointed the guns at their feet and started shooting away. Yeah. I mean, they, these guys, you know, part of the, I think part of the psychology of these individuals was not unlike, you know, famous people or, or even judges to some extent. They're so, they're very used to people currying favor with them, laughing at their jokes, again, treating them like they are the king of the room, that they often forget that they're maybe not as funny as they think they are or they're, they're not as smart or clever as they think they are. Mm. And for someone like Calabrese Sr. in particular, you know, he thought he would just sit on that. And same with Lombardo, I have no doubt. Doyle, who knows? But those two guys, I have no doubt that they thought that they would sit up there and they'd crack some jokes and be witty and charming and be able to confuse the jury because that's always worked with them, right? They've always been able to get their way with others. The problem for them was this wasn't, you know, uh, their home turf. They're not dealing with their compatriots in the mob. They're in a federal courthouse with a federal judge dealing with prosecutors who have a lot of experience cross-examining people who know the facts as well or better than they do. And so they were getting tripped up constantly uh, in their own stories. They were, I mean, Mitch and John completely dismantled uh, them. Uh, Lombardo was completely dismantled, as was, as was Frank Calabrese Sr. Sr. was, in fact, the worst, I think, one of the worst witnesses I've ever seen because, again, he thought he could outsmart, outfox, and outcharm the government, and it just absolutely blew up in his face. And he was getting angry up there when he was being challenged, right? Like any megalomaniac would. Yeah, he would get angry. There'd be these flashes of anger that would, would show up in between the smiles and the and the uh, the attempts to to charm. Uh, same was true for for Lombardo. Same was true for Doyle. I mean, in many ways, Doyle, who I was, who I cross examined, you know, Doyle got really angry at one point. He he sort of reared up out of his seat like he was going to charge me or something. By way of background, Doyle was the head of the Evidence and Recovered Property Section, or ERPS, of the Chicago Police Department. So he was a police officer first and foremost. Well, maybe not first and foremost, but he was a police officer. First and foremost, he was a mob associate. 
but he got real um, testy uh, when when he was confronted. But I think maybe for slightly different reasons. I think for particularly Calabrese, he was not used to people talking back to him, trying to make him look silly. Right. But yeah, no, a- absolutely there was a psychology to it. And, and there was a psychology to how we approached the case as well. And that's a good place for us to take a break. We'll be right back. Getting legal malpractice insurance doesn't have to be complicated. Let CBA Insurance Agency do the heavy lifting for you. We shop to the top carriers to find the best rates. Get a free quote by visiting cbainsurance.org. And we're back. So your star witnesses were Frank Jr. and Nick Calabrese, two witnesses that undoubtedly had credibility problems that would be difficult for you to overcome. You mentioned Frank Jr. had a history of drug use, stealing from his own father. Nick admitted to murdering 14 people, was you know connected to at least 22 other murders. And, you know, spoiler alert, the, the jury didn't ultimately convict any of the defendants, as I understand it, of anything that Nick testified to unless there was some form of corroborating evidence that also linked the defendant to the crime. So the jury obviously didn't just believe everything Nick said, you know, didn't take it as gospel. How did you overcome that at trial? That seems to be not an insurmountable challenge, but certainly a, a very difficult one. It's a huge challenge. And, and frankly, had we known at jury selection what we knew after jury selection, I think we would have been a lot more nervous. So when you said the jury didn't convict anyone of crimes where the only evidence was Nick testifying, you're right, but in a technical sense. In other words, Mm. 11 of the 12 jurors were more than happy to convict. One of the jurors we, we came to discover later had certain views of the government uh, and 9-11 and conspiracies and the Pentagon that would have made this juror particularly unappealing if you're the government. And so the fact that the rest of the jurors and and this one juror were able to come to consensus on anything in hindsight was surprising, frankly. And, And to be honest with you, this is one of those situations where you think you know a jury well, this was actually probably, if you'd have asked me who's your favorite juror, I'd have said this particular juror is my favorite juror because mm. you know she seems to be uh, totally uh, on point with us and nodding and really under- appreciating all the detail. But it just so happened that there were there were aspects of, of the total jury pool there that we weren't fully aware of. So, But you're 100% right. I mean, the view was, and I don't blame any juror for this, is that, look, Nick Calabrese is a murderer uh, many times over. And Frank Jr. is trying to get even with his dad. And so I'm not going to believe any of these people, which happens. You know, now yeah. the, what we felt good about was you have Nick, if you put you know, a chart up, a matrix, you can have all these different persons testifying. All, and then you have video evidence and you have documentary evidence and surveillance and other people testifying. And you can see how the check marks all line up. So you don't just have to take... Nick Calabrese's word for it or Frank Jr.'s audio tape for it. 
you have all the external evidence, including details about the murders that no one would know who didn't commit the murder. So in that sense, it's true. It was always a challenge with the jury system to convince 12 people of anything. I mean, try it sometime, right? Um, yeah. You know, and, and, and I think the, uh, the Gallup polls were the, showed that uh, something like 60% of Americans believe that the uh, sun revolves around the earth. And so, you know, you, you, it's not easy to convince people to convict anyone of anything. And so there is no such thing as an easy case. And mm. so here, what we try to do f for this whole trial was, you know, we're going to present testimony from Nick Calabrese, but you don't have to believe Nick Calabrese at all. In fact, you're going to see that there are like five other avenues of evidence, all of which show the same thing and line up perfectly. Yeah. And it's impossible that all these people and all these facts and bits of evidence were all concocted. And like we often say, all prosecutors tend to say to jurors, you know, if you want to learn about baking, you go to a baker. And if you want to learn about, you know, committing crimes and being a mobster, you go to a mobster. And, uh, and the other point that's sort of a, it's a bit of a cliche, but we, we all tend to say it, is that we didn't choose the witnesses, right? The mobsters chose the witnesses. They chose right. to work with Nick Calabrese and Frank Jr. We didn't. It just so happens that they're cooperating. You don't have to take their word for it because all these other people say the same thing and all the other video and audio tapes, et cetera, all prove the same thing. So that's sort of how we try to combat that inherent credibility issue. And speaking of Nick's murders and, and the crimes that were testified to and were the impetus for this investigation, we didn't really talk about <laughs> the murders themselves. The, the murder that really got this whole investigation going was that of John Fecarota. And that was essentially because the glove was left, as you mentioned, at or near the scene of the murder. And while Frank Sr. was in prison and speaking with his son on tape, there was discussions being had involving Nick Calabrese's involvement in, in the murder and, and Frank Sr. himself's uh, involvement in that murder. Can you talk a little bit about that and how that sort of unraveled the case and then maybe mention some of the other murders that were testified to at the trial? I feel like the audience is going to be interested in just hearing about some of the underlying crimes because we haven't really touched on that. Yeah, sure thing. And, and this reminds me a little bit of when I was doing the closing in the case. We talked about these 14 murders and, you know, you could almost see the jurors, you know, the, one murder starts blending and bleeding in with the next one, no pun intended. And part of it is to remember these are real people that had real lives. Now, some of them, like John Fekirata, are, are mobsters. And, you know, some, some could say, well, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. But others were not. And others were totally uninvolved with organized crime. They just were at the wrong place at the wrong time. And so I can, you know, kind of talk a little bit about Fekirata. And apologies to all uh, of our Italian friends. Uh, the pronunciations went out the window probably 50 years ago on all these names because uh, Calabresi is not Calabresi, it's Calabrese and, and so forth. But so with Fecorata, you're right, Jen, the Fecorata homicide ended up being the, the string that we were able to pull that made the, the whole thing fall apart. Right. That's why I bring that up because it's, I mean, it was related to the Spalaccio brother murders, right? I mean, it sort of stemmed from those events or it occurred because, you know, he botched the burial in that case, if I'm mm -hmm. understanding it correctly. That's why I brought that up. Obviously, no one murder is more or less 
important than the next. But that one took prominence in my mind because it sort of got the whole ball rolling for the government's case. Yeah, I mean, look, John Fekirada had some other issues, including um, his choices of romantic partners and so forth. So he had, there were a number of people who were sort of tired of him. And so one of his best friends, his childhood friend, Nick Calabrese, was given the job to kill him along with Frank Calabrese. And so in September, I think it was September 14th of, of 86, Nick Calabrese and Fekirada are driving in a van, and the, the ostensible purpose is to basically put a bomb on this guy's house, scare him, a doctor, I think it was, or dentist. The reality was that Fecarada was given a gun with no firing pin in it. They had fake TNT. And uh, ultimately, uh, long story short, they were driving. Nick took the gun out, and uh, Nick was a driver. And uh, Fecarada caught the play, and the two were in the van struggling with one another. And then Nick shoots and shoots himself through the arm, uh, but also hits Fecarada. So the gun kind of, imagine the bullet, you know, two people fighting in a car, bullet goes through forearm of Nick Calabrese and hits Fecarada. Fecarada gets out of the van, runs away. Uh, I remember it's like near in front of a bingo hall. Nick is chasing him, you know, through the park and shoots him and, and kind of executes him and then, and then walks away. The thing that this is one of those sort of, you know, when you bad luck uh, situations is September, as we all know, is usually a pretty cool time in Chicago. And so uh, on this day, it was an unseasonably warm time. And so what Nick Calabrese ended up doing, right, he had gloves on, sort of think of driving gloves. He'd now shot his buddy. He's got these gloves on his hands. And it's a warm day, and he's essentially like in a T-shirt. And, of course, he realizes he doesn't have work gloves on. He has, like, driving gloves on. It looks strange. So he takes the gloves off and puts them in his pocket because he thinks people he's going to draw attention to himself as he's going over to his brother, his brother He uh, thinks Frank people Calabrese. will think he's wearing murder gloves. Right, or he's <laughs> up to, you know, burglary. It just look notable. And so he, he ends up putting him in his back pocket as he's trying to find his brother who's in a car to drive away with him. And unlucky for him at the time, uh, lucky for us, he drops one glove or one glove falls out of his pocket, falls on the side of the street. The police eventually recover it, but this is sort of pre-DNA times, at least not the way we know them today. And so that glove sits in an evidence vault, right? In Earps, where our man Doyle is in charge. And it sits there with nothing happening to it. And then when Nick cooperates and says, I committed this murder, my DNA, Fecarata, whatever, I shot myself through the arm. Now we know, so now we can take the glove, we can do, uh, um, or rather Junior tells us this, we can now do a, a DNA examination. We find Nick Calabrese's DNA on, on the gloves, as well as obviously Fecarata's blood. And so then we're able to approach Nick and say, we know you did it, and we know you did it in part because we didn't want to burn Frank Calabrese Jr. We know it because your DNA is all over this glove. So really, if had he not dropped that glove on the ground, we would have never, I think, been able to get him to cooperate. And had we not had him cooperating, we'd have never been able to build a case of the stature of family secrets. So it's one of those things where just if it was, if it was a cold day in Chicago, this case may never have happened, the way, or at least the, the prosecution may never have happened the way it did, but it wasn't, and so it did. One of the more spectacular murders, I think it was, was it Michael Cagnoni, mm -hmm. small business owner in the suburbs, his car was blown up on a 
Chicago Highway because he was refusing to pay street tax. The reason that comes to mind is you spoke earlier about Nick's, I don't know if crisis of conscience is too strong a term for it, but, you know, just the reason why he eventually cooperated. It's my understanding that they almost accidentally blew up Cagnoni's wife and child earlier that morning because she had taken the car to drive their kid to school, mm-hmm. right? And uh, thankfully that that didn't happen and Cagnoni died, I think maybe later that morning. But can you talk to us a little bit about that that murder? Yeah, sure. So so uh, Michael Cagnoni uh, was in the trucking industry. He, yeah, he, he refused to pay the mob and they decided, you know, he needed to, um, they were probably also a little worried he might cooperate. So they... Um, basically put a bomb in his Mercedes and it went off when it went around a clover and got within range of, think of it like a, um, a garage opener that had mm-hmm. the, the beeper depressed. As soon as it got within range of that, it set off the bomb and the bomb blew up. We're talking June uh, 24th of 81, I believe, is when that happened. And I'll, I'll, I, look, these murders are all grisly and there are a lot of horrendous pictures. That's one of the things we had to decide is we don't want to... F- offend the jury or freak them out too much. You don't show them every picture you could show. Yeah. But uh, Mr. Cagnoni, that homicide uh, and what his body looked like and where the parts of it were and so forth uh, was something I'm, I think it's fair to say anyone who ever was involved in the case will never forget. And he was totally innocent, right, in the sense that he was not a mobster. He was not, you know, double-crossing anyone. He was not sleeping with some mobster's wife. There was... He was just a business guy who didn't want to, you know, be pressured to pay money. And so, and you're right, uh, earlier that day, uh, his wife and kid, where I think the wife was dropping the kid off at school, they could have very well gone the same route. They could have potentially been the ones that got blown up. And I think that's one of those things that probably wouldn't have bothered Frank Sr. too much, but it did bother Nick a lot. And so it didn't stop him from committing murders, but I think it really, it, it shook him pretty well. And also Danny Seifert. I mean, look, every one of these homicides is a, you know, is a really horrible thing. But back in 74, also, I think in September, Danny Seifert was killed. And he was shot by John Lombardo and Frank the German Schweiss at work. Uh, and he was shot right in front of his wife and five-year-old son. His five-year-old son is now, you know, give or take my age uh, and uh, has never forgotten it. And as a five-year-old, he saw his father be executed, shot and then executed. So, and there are many others. I mean, there's the Daubert double homicide uh, with Bill and Charlotte Daubert, who were, um, depending on who you listen to, were coming back from court or coming back from a, a meeting with their attorney or rather a meeting that their attorney declined to attend. And so they were on their way home. And uh, like in the movies, you know, Frank Calabri Sr. pulls up, not only him, but the mobsters basically pass in this rural road, pass the, the car of the Daubers, open the side sliding door and start shotgunning uh, into the car and then uh, end up, you know, from close range killing both of them. Now, Bill Daubert, without a doubt, was not an innocent person from a legal perspective. He was a mob affiliate himself, but his wife wasn't. But again, wrong person, wrong time. I think, in fact, Calabrese Sr. said words to the effect that she was at the wrong place at the wrong time, but what are we going to do? You know, tell yeah. her to leave? I mean, so that's how they operated. Let me ask you uh, about a moment of the trial that's kind of gone down in lore, but I know there's some debate as to whether it actually happened, and we've got you here, so no one better to answer it. 
Did Frank Sr. threaten your life under his breath during the closing argument? Because that, that's sort of a legendary moment, and there's a question as to whether the jury heard it or not. Did that happen? Yeah, well, I'll say that the... Yes, it happened. I mean, whether he threatened me as in to get me to do anything different, I don't think so. Here's what happened. So I'm doing the closing. It's five hours long. As you can probably tell, after five hours, people no, one, no longer want to hear from me. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, at some point, you, you outwear your welcome with anyone. But sort of midway through, I was talking about a homicide that, um, that Frank Sr. had committed. And Frank Sr. And, and, and Joe Lopez, Joe the Shark Lopez, were sort of two... They were, they were sort of made for each other in some ways. If you know Joe, I love Joe, but you, you know what I'm talking about. They're both sort of big personalities and very... Uh, um, Lopez was Frank Sr.'s lawyer. Right, right, exactly. He was his, his lawyer. They both liked car magazines. I still remember, as if it was yesterday, they would sit there with these legal, Manila legal, you know, kind of folders and pretend to be looking at some document related to the case. In fact, they're like talking, because they were right behind us. Yeah. Uh, you could hear them talking about like, oh, look at this car, look at the wheels or whatever there. So during the closing, I'm talking about Senior. I'm kind of, you know, as was sort of my habit, frankly, pointing at him and sort of, he had testified, right? So that's important to remember from a legal perspective in terms of what you can say about someone who testified. And as I'm talking about him and, and, and I see him, uh, he starts kind of... Uh, uh, grinning and, and chuckling a little bit. Now, I'm sure he was trying to do one of those chuckles, like, ah, oh, this fool doesn't know what he's talking about, trying to make me look bad or whatever. But it, for some reason, it really, I remember it really ticked me off, frankly. And and I thought real quickly, did the calculus about uh, um, uh, a person who's testified and, and, you know, referring to them or talking to them, obviously is improper normally. But when someone does that, when someone basically comments on what you're saying or chuckles or reacts, you know, you could comment on them. So what I said was, see that man there, he's laughing. I'm talking about a homicide he committed and he thinks it's funny. You know, is there something funny about what I just said, Mr. Calabrese? Or maybe I said there was nothing funny about what I just said. Some words to that effect. Essentially pretty confrontational by federal court, you know, standards. You're getting in his face. There was an, definitely an element of that during that episode and just in general, uh, again, to try to diffuse this, this, this sense that they owned the courthouse, owned everything, you know. Uh, and it's after that, after I said that, you know, imagine a tennis match, right? You watch where the ball is, you go, your head goes back and forth. So I'm now back to the jury, but the jury, you know, has just seen me say this to him, so they're still looking at him. And this all came out later. This came out from the jury themselves. None of us picked up on it. And he basically leaned forward and muttered, and I say muttered because the jury said they could tell it from his, like reading his lips and also from what they heard. He said, you're, you're a, an effing, although I didn't use that term, but he said, you're an effing dead man, referring to me. And I didn't hear it, and none of us heard it. It's only after the trial when one of the jurors approaches Mitch Mars and myself, and once a meeting, we meet with, get permission, and then we meet with him. And learned that the jury had picked that up. Uh, in fact, I remember that the juror said that he was surprised that we didn't have any sort of security detail because uh, that confirmed that what they all thought, which is that we probably did not pick up on it because of the way it was said and the sort of muttering way. And, and they were facing right at Calabrese, whereas yeah. the, the audience was looking to him from the side and the rest of us were looking at the jury. And so that then we had hearings on it. You know, I had to testify. Other people had to testify. Ultimately, Judge uh, Zagel uh, made a factual finding that the that the threat did happen. He also found okay. that it didn't prejudice 
the other defendants that they were very, the jury, and I think this is entirely accurate, that the jury is very well able to distinguish Calabrese from all the other defendants, and they could hold mm -hmm. this against Calabrese without holding against the other defendants. So, I mean, that, that raises in my mind the question, did you, do you still ever worry about your safety and the safety of your family? I mean, we're talking about true psychopaths, sociopaths, all the bad kinds of paths that you put away forever and that you were trying to put away forever then. What stops them from seeking retribution? Well, I'll try to phrase this sort of carefully, um, maybe unusually carefully. The big picture, the mob is, an, is, is a business, right? They don't enhance their profits or make their job any easier by re seeking retribution against uh, law enforcement. That's more street criminality, right? Street mm. gangs or, or others. Frank Calabrese was crazy uh, in a way, not clinically crazy, but he really was a psychopath. And he enjoyed seeing people suffer. He was that kind of a guy. So with him, it was, you know, we all took it more seriously. I remember there's a, a Italian prosecutor named Gianfranco Falcone, and he was ultimately killed by the mob. He did this huge mob case in, in, in Naples, or rather Naples, in, uh, in Sicily. He once commented that if, they, that if a mobster ever wants to kill him, that that'll be a great compliment because that shows that he must be doing something right. And so I took, I mean, look, I was also, Brave man. I had no children. I was a single guy. I didn't have some of the concerns I might have if things were different. Uh, but no, I mean, of course you take it seriously. As these things turn out, uh, my neighbor certainly took it seriously because it ended up being splashed all over the newspaper, uh, including the cover of the Sun-Times. I think it said something like, you're a dead man. And my neighbors, you know, living in Old Town at the time, were not exactly excited to hear <laughs> that I drew that kind of attention. They were sort of like, oh, thanks a lot for doing this case, but could you please move? There were some events that occurred that showed that Frank Calabrese wasn't just venting, on that day, it's easy for me to say now because he's also dead, and I don't think any of the other co-defendants were as irrational as he was. I mean, he, mm. he, I could see him trying to follow through on it, and as far as I'm concerned, I can tell. Of course, not being with the government, I don't have any insights uh, like I used to, but there were some, you know, some concrete steps taken by him or sought to be taken by him. But uh, ultimately, hey, I'm, I'm here, he's not. And I think all of the other defendants, they may not like us prosecutors, but they know that we are to an extent fungible too, just like they are. Mm -hmm. And so if you you know got rid of uh, the whole trial team, th that doesn't mean these guys are going free. There'll just be a new group of prosecutors there. But I think Calabrese just took it kind of personally. The whole relationship between him and, and all of us actually was somewhat different than most defendants because he just was sort of a... Uh, yeah, he was a he was a psychopath. So, I know we're running a little bit tight on time, but I, I said at the top of the podcast that this was the the case that took down the Chicago outfit. You corrected me on that and said they're still around, which absolutely that's true, but in a much reduced capacity. What do you know about the current condition of the outfit in Chicago? I mean, this trial took down a large part of their leadership. Where are they today as an organization? Well, look, I mean, there are still people out there pursuing these cases. Amr Bachu and the Chicago U.S. Attorney's Office is really first among equals in, in that regard in terms of him getting involved in, in mob cases. I don't know exactly what the state of play is now. Uh, I can tell you my sense of things just based on where things stood way back when is that in terms of numbers, the Chicago mob is not what it once was. In terms of power, they're not what it once were. But one can't lose sight of, for example— John Ambrose, 
right? John Ambrose, a decorated U.S. Marshal, head of the of the Fugitive Task Force, the Great Lakes Fugitive Task Force. He ended up getting swept up in this thing because he had mob ties and he ultimately was informing the mob about the whereabouts of Nick Calabrese when at the time Nick Calabrese was the country's most secured cooperator, uh, most secured WITSEC person, cooperator. And nonetheless, days later, the mob knew where he was, uh, what Mm -hmm. he was looking at. And the reason I bring that example up is the one thing that the mob was able to do then and is still able to do now is infiltrate the higher ranks of civil society, of the judiciary, of uh, law enforcement, of the political arena. In other words, they have their tentacles in at a level uh, so far above what, let's say, street criminals can do. So it's true. If you walk around Chicago and you read these terrifying and horrifying statistics about murders, it's unbelievable what's happening. But these people who commit those murders typically don't have access like the the mobsters do. They're street criminals. They have a lot of power. They have, they can terrorize people, but they don't have access to, you know, high ranking political figures. The mob, in my estimation, did and still does have that power. Uh, so I think they're a little bit like a sleeping giant. You know, you have to sort of. It would be a big folly, I think, uh, and this is, I know I'm channeling Mitch Mars and John Scully and everyone else who worked these cases. It's a great folly to count them out. Uh, just because mm-hmm. we did this case and just because these guys are old and just because you don't see them walking around and driving Cadillacs and wearing fur coats doesn't mean that they're somehow not there anymore. The organized crime influence in Chicago is still there and it's just it's just taken on a different form and maybe a little more dormant now than it once was but again it would be a great mistake to uh, underestimate them so where did all the money go I mean it, it seems to me that we're talking about one of the notorious most notorious mafia organizations in the world they're shaking down a large part of Chicago they're taking street taxes they're skimming from unions they're running illegal gambling operations. As I said before, they're running a casino in Las Vegas. But when you look at where these guys lived, you know, they sort of lived these middle-class lifestyles. They weren't taking private jets to Barbados every weekend or anything like that. It, it, it doesn't seem to reflect the illicit fortunes that they must have been generating. So what happens to all that money after cases like this? Well, you know, they were playing a long game. I mean, one of the big things, one of the big differences, and this is something I really only learned by doing this case, between, let's say, New York, the five families, and, and the Chicago outfit is, in New York, it's very much like like you're in England. You know, if you're, if you're Prince William or whoever, you know, you're a certain lineage in the throne on the ascendancy to be king. And so it's not a meritocracy. In other words, if you're a Bonanno or, you know, your chances, you work your way up within your family. But as we know from England, as we know from from New York, uh, that doesn't necessarily bring the smartest and best people uh, to the top. And so in Chicago, it was much more like a McDonald's, you know, where you work your way up. It doesn't mm. matter, no, you know, Al Capone, if your last name is Capone or it, none of that matters, right? It, what matters is sort of how you perform and, and how hard you work. And so in Chicago, you made your way up the hierarchy in more of a meritocracy uh, fashion. The result of that is that most of the people at the top, their kids go to law school, medical school. They go into legitimate businesses. They inherit your money. Half of them don't even know where the money really came from. And they just build their house and their life, and it's totally gone. It's like mm. it's essentially like money laundering one way. Like you're just taking the money instead of taking it and and flowing it back to organized crime. You're taking the ill-gotten gains, and they flow out into legitimate lifestyles and lives. 
and then they just dissipate into the ether, so to speak. And so, you know, other than Calabrese, uh, you you generally, generally, not always, but generally look in vain for, in Chicago to find a dynasty, right? An organized a name where the kid, the grandkid, you know, the son, everyone's uh, involved in, in organized crime. Typically, right. the goal is make your money, work hard. You're going to be a mobster your whole life, but then your kids will have a better life. Mm. That's sort of how it kind of shaked out. And that's, I think, where a lot of the money is. In other words, I don't think these people necessarily know that they're you know, father or uncle or great-grandfather was some sort of a, a, a murderer. They might have heard, you know, that on the streets a little bit, but that money is gone, and it's not in some big pot of criminal dollars. And just one more question for you today, Marcus. So can you tell us about how things resolved? You know, what was the final verdict in the case? And tell us a little bit about the sentencing as well. Yeah, sure thing. So, um, you know, we had this uh, trial team of uh, Mitch Mars, John Scully, myself. Uh, Mitch, uh, as I mentioned, way, way, way too early, passed away uh, in 2008. Uh, John Scully uh, became a judge, and that left me. And so we, uh, the trial ended in 2007. By early 2009, really January to March of 2009, we had all of the sentencings in front of Judge Zagel. And so we had the sentencings for Lombardo, who received life imprisonment, for Frank Calabrese Sr., who received life, for Jimmy Marcello, who received life, for uh, Paul Shiro, who received 20 years, and then for Tuan Doyle, uh, who received 12 years in incarceration. And so those sentencings all happened kind of one after the other over the course of the weeks, uh, again, largely between January and March of 2009. And then Nick Calabrese ultimately, as you recall, he was the cooperator who, who had over a dozen murders to his name, and he received 12 years, which of course was highly controversial within the victim group. It was highly controversial uh, in the media, but uh, as Judge Zagel explained, Without Nick Calabrese, the case would have not been able to be made, not the way it was made. And so that's why uh, Judge Zagel decided to give him a, an ex a really an extraordinary break for the number of murders he committed. And the idea there, Marcus, is you want to encourage future cooperators to come forward, right? Because if you were to throw the book at him after the fact, then, you know, future Nick Calabrese's would sit tight. Yeah, and the, the interesting thing, as I mentioned sort of earlier on, is that Nick basically got rid of his attorney and said he wanted to, to work with uh, the FBI and the U.S. Attorney's Office. And, and the only deal he expected was that, that he would be treated, as he put it, fairly. I think given everything that he unpacked, all the information that he shared, all the intelligence that he was able to provide – I would imagine he could have gotten quite a good deal worked out if he had counsel. And so it really came down to us, to some extent, also holding up our part of the bargain. And so, like you said, if, if he had received a very harsh sentence, and this is something Judge Zagel emphasized, then no one would come forward. Uh, and Judge Zagel also emphasized that Nick would never really be free because he would always have these mob uh, connections, his life really, uh, of connections after him and behind him and looking over his shoulder. Candidly, it was a capstone of the case, and, and they ended it. And so it was an emotional uh, sentencing. And uh, like I said, I think we had some one of the victims um, fainted. People were very upset uh, about that. But really, 
I mean, 12 years for, you know, 14 or so homicides and many more that he, that he knew of, obviously is a very light sentence. But we knew of one murder he committed, and uh, he admitted all the other ones on his own. And so when you look at it through that lens, uh, in that sense, it's still a, a, an extraordinarily positive deal. But like you said, John, if he had gotten, you know, a life sentence because we didn't have a plea agreement, that would have, I think, dissuaded others from cooperating. And he was, once again, he was the, the first and only made member of the Chicago outfit ever to testify in trial against right. other made members. And that made it you know, his cooperation really extraordinary. And with the end of the story, that's probably a good place for us to close. We'll be right back with Stranger in Legal Fiction. Seeking to expand your legal network, sharpen your skills, and obtain free CLE? Unless you plan on being a professional failure, that's probably a good idea. Join the Chicago Bar Association today and connect with lawyers and judges who lead Chicago's legal community. The CBA will help you expand your personal and professional networks while providing practical programs and resources that meet your specific practice needs. New lawyer membership starts at just $82 a year. Learn more at www.chicagobar.org. Need a lawyer? Steve? I do. You look like you need a lawyer. The Chicago Bar Association Lawyer Referral Service has been making referrals for over 70 years to attorneys who have been thoroughly screened for experience in over 40 different areas of the law. Call 312-554-2001 or visit us online at www.chicagobar.org backslash LRS. And we're back with Stranger in Legal Fiction. Our audience knows the rules, but for the newbies, the rules are pretty simple. Uh, Jen and I have done some research on the internet. We found one strange law that is real, but probably shouldn't be. We've made another one up, and we're going to quiz you, Marcus, and each other to see who can distinguish strange fact from fiction. Are you ready to play? Ready. All right, let's do this. Jen, why don't you lead us off? All right. So the first option is... It is illegal in Los Angeles to wash your car in the street. The second option is it is illegal in Chicago to put a chair in the street when you've dug out your parking spot to prevent other potential Chicagoans from stealing your your dugout spot, which is, as you know, a tradition that we call dibs. Yeah. What do you think, Marcus? You know, man, maybe I'm showing that I don't live in Chicago anymore, but my thought would be it's illegal to put an object in the street, whether it's to protect a parking spot or for any other reason. I know in the U.S., right, I mean, if it's not illegal, then it's legal. In other words, if it's not specifically prohibited, you can do it, whereas, you know... uh, In Europe, they come to it from a different perspective, which is um, you have to sort of explicitly allow certain things to happen here. That's my logic, but I'm sure you guys know the answer. I mean, I'm sure that comes up every winter. There's a little article and, you know, someone (laughs) or or John Cast has a, you know, a a story on it or used to. What are your thoughts, John? You know, we're a team, right? Isn't that how it works here? It's, we're, no, we're all against each other. Oh, it's every, it's every, every person for themselves. I shouldn't have given up my logic then. Okay. Uh, So I'm going to go the other way. And here's why Dibs is a time honored Chicago tradition. And if I remember correctly, it was Louis Brandeis who said that if you want people to respect the law, you have to make the law respectable. And undermining that tradition and undermining the hard work that Chicagoans put into digging out their cars 
every winter, I think would be a travesty to the legal profession. So uh, you're still uh, screen sharing, Marcus, so I can I'm see you Googling it, it right yeah. now. You're cheating I wanna, well, for our audience. He's cheating I've, in real time. <laughs> he already gave I've, his answer, so now I he gave can my answer. I'm already uh, locked all right. in. All right, Jen. I'm locked in. Jen. I mean, uh, I, I know, I know, I know, I know that it's not respected by some people, but I'm going to say the LA law is real. You're wrong, John. Marcus ah, is correct. Score one. So the, the LA law is actually that no person shall dust, wipe, wash, or otherwise clean, use, or employ any method of dusting, wiping, washing, or otherwise cleaning any vehicle or any portion thereof while on any street, unless such vehicle is owned by or under the direct control or supervision of the mm. person doing the acts enumerated herein. So what that means is you can't wash your friend's car in the street or your neighbor's, but you can wash your own. So you can't have like a charity car wash to raise money or anything like that? That's just... Nope. That's true. Well, not in the street. If you did it in a parking lot, maybe okay. there would be an exception there. In okay. Chicago, it is illegal to... It's just wrong. To put your put your chair, your folding chair, to do the dibs, you know, specifically the ordinance says, except as otherwise specifically permitted by this code, no persons shall use any public way for the storage of personal property, goods, wares, or merchandise of any kind. And it goes on and gives more, more specifics there. But That's it's terrible. kind of been grandfathered in, you know, it's been referred to by multiple of our mayoral candidates as something that is commonly done in Chicago, but still technically on the books is illegal. Um, but that the article that we saw you pulling up there, Marcus, you should give it a read because it talks about the various crimes that people commit against those who violate the dibs rule. Like I think WBEZ did some research and found out that there's a lot of destruction of property that occurs right around the time of big snowstorms in Chicago. So I think that pretty much says it's like, it's it's illegal, but it it's done. Your well, turn, John. I did John. see, uh, <laughs> I was watching one of these, uh, one, one of these uh, shows where they talk about like terrible neighbors and they had a lady with a snowblower or maybe no, it was a man with a snowblower like totally burying this woman's car because she had apparently violated his dibs his uh, customary law that John loves so much. <laughs> um, uh, but again, just for the record, if I since you did have me screen sharing, had I looked it up prior to giving the answer, that would have been cheating. Afterwards, simply confirming. There you uh, go. Oh, I never got the answer. For, so I'm happy to see I was right. Yeah, former yeah. prosecutor, ladies and gentlemen. I'll yeah. tell you what, if you can see my screen right now, that's Lori Lightfoot's cell phone number, mayor of Chicago. Uh -huh. I'm calling uh -huh. her after this, and we're going to have a discussion about repealing that law because that's terrible. <laughs> All right. Option number one. Mm -hmm. It's illegal in Nevada, not simply to steal a shopping cart from a retail store, laundromat, or dry cleaner, but also to retrieve that cart from the thief or a subsequent possessor unless one has a license authorizing that retrieval. That's option number one. Mm -hmm. Option number two. In Cloverdale, Illinois, it is illegal for retailers to hang holiday-related ornaments from any type of tree or bush that is not a non-deciduous conifer or other type of cone-bearing seed plant. Oh, come on. Come on, man. 
I mean, you seem pretty certain. What is it, doctor? I mean, I, okay, not to quibble here, but when you say unless you have a license, so you're telling me there's someone who's a licensed shopping cart retrieval person, not li- not not has license to, in other words, a police officer, but you're saying, because I could see the logic, right? The logic is you don't want someone running around with a, uh, a shopping cart with some company's name on it and uh, and then claiming, oh, I was just, you know, I took it from someone else. I didn't steal it. So they're trying to make sure that they can, you know, they can they can grab you down the road. I could see why the presence of the article in that sentence could is important. That's a fair point, but that may not be the real law. Yeah. So you 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 the way you uh, the way you said licensed is in fact what the question is, right? It wasn't just an error on your part in terms of. So you're saying there's someone with a license that says I have a license to retrieve shopping carts. That's what I'm saying. Okay. Okay. I think I know my answer, but I don't even understand the second one, but. Jen, do you want to? How does this work? I mean, I'm a newbie. So. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna side with you, Marcus. I'm gonna say that the Nevada law is the phony law. It's just too outrageous that you would have a license to retrieve carts or to have a cart. Is it that you have the license to actually possess a? It's a laundry cart. No, that's fake. Shopping. See the way John's smiling though. Now, dear li- listeners, you you don't see this, but makes me think he's up to no good. But uh, but I think he's maybe fooled us both in the same direction, in which case my overall tally will not change against both of you. So rule of thumb in this game, the more ridiculous and improbable the law seems, the more likely it is to be real. And that rule controls here. Can I change my my answer then? Nevada revised statutes, and you can Google this in real time since you're still screen sharing, section 205860 addressing the wrongful possession, abandonment, or alteration of carts and serial numbers makes it illegal to engage in self-repossession activities without a license to do so. Hmm. I should have known. I'm not a newbie to this game. I should have known that that it was real, but it just seems so outrageous. But I how is the other is. one any less crazy? It, well, the, 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 that's a, yeah. How you decorate a tree. They're both crazy. I mean, yeah. I mean, yeah. I should have known that that one sounded made up because it was, but. (laughs) Thanks for doing this, Marcus. It was a lot of fun. Sure. You betcha. And that's our show for today, Marcus. It's really been an absolute pleasure and an honor to speak with you today. Thank you so much for everything you did to make the city safer for its residents and, again, for joining us on the pod. I also want to thank my co-host and executive producer, Jen Byrne, as well as Adam Lockwood on sound and everyone at the Legal Talk Network family. Remember, you can follow us and send us comments, questions, episode ideas, or just troll us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at CBA at the bar, all one word. Our email address is podcast at chicagobar.org. We're putting together a mailbag episode for early 2022 so be sure to send us ideas for interesting legal topics cases or strange laws you'd like us to explore please also rate and leave us your feedback on apple Podcasts, google play stitcher spotify audible iheart or wherever you download your podcast it helps us get the word out until next time for everyone here at the cba thank you for joining us and we'll see you soon at the bar 